0: Is, is constructed as a dialogue between the neshama, between the soul of man and the seichel of man, the intellect of man. The entire book is a dialogue between the neshama, the soul of the human being, and the intellect of the human being. Now, the way it's broken down is that it's it's very structured in as much as the neshama is essentially, the soul is essentially the one that asks all of the questions, and it is the seichel, the intellect, that gives all of the answers. That's the way it's constructed. Like, the seichel doesn't come up with a question, the intellect doesn't come up with a question that the neshama answers, or vice versa. It's very structured. The neshama is asking all of the questions, and the soul, and the seichel, the intellect, is answering all of the questions. And there is a deeper significance in in the the way that L- that lizardo constructed this dialogue and there's what to learn from it um let um let's try to appreciate it in the following way most people uh, no matter what their backgrounds are in Yiddishkeit, might have somewhat of an impression that that <coughs> hmm. Who knows? I don't know. Might have an impression that, <laughs> might have an impression that when it comes to, to issues of spirituality, religion, God. Um, you know, all of those things that you can't see you know, kind of things that questions legitimate questions come from the intellect and if you give one of these mystical, mushy kinds of answers it's the answer of the neshama in other words, if I'm approaching it like um, you know, an intelligent 20th century human being, it's my intellect that's questioning and if you want to give me some answers that you can't put under a microscope or that you can't touch or that you can't see they have to be neshama answers they have to be soul answers and we have an impression of Yiddishkeit that the intellect is one thing and that with the intellect we basically use in the place of business and in other places and you know when it comes to Yiddishkeit what can you do? you got to put a little neshama into it so even though it doesn't necessarily reconcile itself with intellect. No, but it, it fits the neshama, and it's interesting because Luzzatto really Rav Meshuchaim Luzzatto turns it around, and Rav Meshuchaim Luzzatto says that that's a terrible mistake. The truth of the matter is that any legitimate question of Judaism has to have an intellectual answer. It has to have an answer that's reasonable. It has to have an answer that fits into some form of logic. Now, obviously, there are segments of Yiddishkeit that we don't know the full extent of the reasons. But by and large, what Yiddishkeit is about is not—it's not a religion of the heart, or as the Russians that I've taught in the past, the opium of the masses, now, something to make you feel good. You know, the the hashkafe, the Jewish perspective, why I'm here. Why did God create a world? What is the reality and the realism of a relationship with God? Questions of those nature, of that kind of a nature, are real questions that have to be dealt with brains, with intellect, with intelligence, with logic. And they have answers. And there's virtually not one question... That's presented that the seichel doesn't have an answer for, and it's the seichel that's giving the answers. So I'm not giving you a, um, um, a formula or a perspective that's just nishama you know, uh, and, it, and, and it's as elusive as the nishama is, and it's as elusive as the soul is. No, every question has an in, uh, has an intelligent answer. It has a reasonable answer some of the things need a lot of introductions they have to be built up they have to be constructed correctly but they all have intelligent answers that's from the one side from the other side it also teaches us something about the neshama it teaches us something about the, the neshama of the human being why can't it be that the intellect is asking the questions it's true, the intellect does ask the questions and the intellect does develop the dialogue. But why did Rav Chaim Litzatah so structure his book that the neshama is always the one that's asking the questions and not the intellect? And here, too, there's a very fascinating thing. The fascinating part of this is, is that the intellect of man falls prey to different things. The intellect of man is not copyrighted to the neshama. It's not copyrighted to Neshama. The intellect of man can, can serve to answer Nishama questions. It can answer soul questions. It can answer all kinds of different questions. And it can become the vehicle to the most constructive ways of living. And it can become a vehicle to the most destructive ways of living. The common, the common saying, if you would have brains, you'd be dangerous. The intellect is not a commodity of value isolated onto itself. It falls prey. It falls prey to a positive inclination, a negative inclination. The positive will make the intellect think along positive lines, the negative along negative lines. There is no guarantee that an intellect is going to beg spiritual questions. But there is somewhat of a greater assurance than a neshama, that a soul will beg questions. Because a neshama, after everything is said and done, a soul of a human being is something that has an inherent part to it that remains pure, that remains untouched, that remains untainted, that remains without blemish. And there are many different conditions and reasons why, but a neshama at different junctions in a person's life all of a sudden begins begging. It begins expression. It begins a search. It begins questioning. And that's why in the structure that Lazaro gives to the, the neshama, seichol, dialogue, the neshama is the one that's, so to speak, getting, is something that's deep, deep there from where it comes from. The essence of God itself is beginning to ask questions. And it's the neshama that will sooner push the person to begin asking questions than the seichol. Now, it's very hard for us to sometimes discern this because the route that the nishama goes is that the Nishama addresses the intellect. So we think that the question comes from the intellect. Right? Or, or, so why did the, why did the question come today into my intellect and it wasn't there for the last 20 years or for the last 15 years? But if it comes from the Nishama, the Nishama is a very interesting personality. And it goes, goes, grow, goes through conscious and unconscious stage, stages of growth because of the experiences that a person goes through because of the conditions the time that God says that the neshama has to be listened to and the neshama is ready for the next moment of expression and that's why in, in, in the structure that Lozado brings out in his book the neshama is asking the questions the neshama is in constant search it's always asking looking for something deeper in, in, the, in the seeming simple realities around there has to be something there. It's the neshama that's the energy behind a person's quest, and it's the intellect that can have the proper answers to that. Okay, and that's—I think—that's significant to to point out. Now let's start the text. After all of that talking, Amrah Neshama. So the soul opens up. Ta'avati. <coughs> the soul says. <coughs> Or itzoni, my tremendous desire and, w- and will is that I want to sit and concentrate on certain things May from the category of things upon which it says that you should take to your heart that God is the God of the universe now what is that what I'm going to talk about relates to the principles of Judaism the principles of belief that every person is required to pursue a good knowledge of them everything that he has the capability of understanding now I jumbled about five major ideas into these four lines, but it's not my fault. He did it. So let's let's go back and let's and let's just go through what he said here. Essentially, Rav Mosheh uh, and first of all has made a major statement about Jewish philosophy. That being, if if you recall, before I made mention of the fact that historically there were generations and generations that lived with simple faith and that uh, Rav Meshachayim Lutzata felt, especially by his teacher Elijah the Prophet, that there would come a time that that wouldn't be sufficient. Really, the simple faith, intellectual investigation, those two ways of approaching Judaism, really is is a debate uh, that goes back in Jewish history very, very far. There were many that believed that to start up with philosophy and trying to prove every little part, is there a God, where is the God, what does God look like, there were those that believed that that wasn't the path for a Jew to take, you know, to, to just make everything into mathematical, cold calculations, prove everything, there were those that didn't believe that that was the way to go. And that the way to go was more of an interpersonal relationship with God and spiced with a tremendous amount of simplicity and simple faith. Which simple faith didn't mean blind faith, but it meant trusting God based upon what you knew about God and so on and so forth. And to their argument, they brought historically, they, one of the interesting arguments that's brought to this uh, goes back to the time of the Spanish Inquisition and to the time that the Jews were expelled from Spain in which it's, 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 it's historically recorded that it was the philosophers that fell away from Judaism under the strain under the strain of either change your religion or adapt Christianity or out with you. It was the, It was by and large the cup mentioned the big brainy people, the big philosophers that bent and didn't have the the stamina and the spiritual fiber to resist and to to sanctify God's name by even having to give their lives. While it was sometimes the simple Jew, you know, the one that didn't have any big uh, big degrees in philosophy and didn't know 20 proofs from Maimonides that there's a God in the world, and they were prepared to give their lives not to 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 renounce their Judaism. And it was interesting how... You know, in other words, if all of Judaism is just on argument and it's all on just logic, so there was always this... You know, there come extenuating circumstances where logic doesn't exist and other things don't don't play a role. On the other hand, there was a very major argument um, launched by great philosophers as Ibn Bachya, the author of The Duties of the Heart, Maimonides in his Guide to the Perplexed by the way this was one of the major criticisms of of Maimonides when he authored the Guide to the Perplexed he also there were people that wanted to excommunicate Maimonides for his work he said for the person that has the question there are answers but for all the people that don't have the questions and you introduce the questions who knows if they're going to know if they're going to understand the answers and they were stronger without the whole book But there was a major argument on their side. And the major argument on their side was that it did not make any sense that a Jew should serve God with his hands and his feet and with every other part of his body except his mind. Does it make sense? Does it make sense that a person should be connected to God but that the mind wasn't a participant in the connection? that the mind, that the thinking, the reasoning, the appreciation through through the reasoning process shouldn't be part of it. I know there are a lot of things I think I think everybody in their own lives. When you go through something, it's much different if you go through it and you understand what you're doing, or if you go through it and you don't understand what you're doing, but you're just going through the motions. Right? So the argument which Ibn Baha very eloquently writes about in the introduction to his book is does it make sense that a person shouldn't have the the gusto and the, and the zeal of what a mind could put behind what one's doing by understanding it and appreciating it and having a depth of knowledge of what one's doing. It doesn't make sense. That was their argument. And essentially what Lozado here is maintaining is the argument that a person must serve God with his mind as well. Not with the rest of his body, but without his mind. And he brings a verse to prove it. He says, I don't know what the controversy is all about, but there is a verse in the Torah which says it very clearly. It says, elavavecha v'yadata ha'yom elavavecha, ki You have to know this, and you have to place this upon your heart, and you really have to understand it. Ki that God is God. Now, so, uh, in the in the way that Lazaro understands it, Lazaro is saying that it's a mitzvah, it's a positive command. That God is telling us that when we approach our principles of Judaism to the extent that we have background and the ability and the knowledge to understand, we're required to do it. Because we have to get our complete selves behind what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we understand it. It's all part of it. This is the of Salavavacha. So therefore, that's what, the, so the Nishama is saying, I'm gonna begin asking questions. And I'm gonna ask questions that have to do with principles of belief. And if you wanna know why I legitimately can ask these questions, it's because the Torah tells me and obliges me to ask and to understand these questions. But the Nishama says one very fascinating thing. And I'll review this insight in a moment. The Nishama says one thing. He, the, it's qualified with the last four words in the paragraph five words in the paragraph everything that I'm capable of understanding now let me explain what that means because this is a tremendous pitfall in philosophy in general when a person approaches philosophy one approaches philosophy admitting it or not admitting it it's okay, everything is guilty until proven innocent now everything is up, up against the testing board. Right? If you can give me a good reason, fine. Otherwise, out with it. Right? This is a natural approach, the scientific approach. You approach it, how much of it can you prove? If you can prove it, then it's valid. It can be accepted. And if it's not proven, it can't be accepted, because it's not proven. Right? So what the, the, what the Neshama is saying over here is, I'm in a pursuit An intellectual pursuit, intellectual investigation. I want to understand the principles. I just don't want to accept them because they are there, because they've been codified that these are the principles of belief. I want to understand them, and I have a right to understand them, and I have an obligation to understand them. But I know that I have limitations in my understanding. And when I reach the point of my limitation, I will be willing to accept it as a limitation in my understanding rather than a disproof of the principle. Now that's a major step that most, uh, most philosophy will not, will not swallow. Will not swallow. And that's the interesting blend, or if you would want to call it compromise, with which we approach Judaism as a, as a combination of simple faith and at the same time in that intellectual investigation. To the degree that we can jump into it and we can understand it fine to the degree that we grope, grope, grope and we reach an area that we really can't understand we stand back and we say this is not to prove the illegitimacy of the belief but it just brings proof to the fact that there is human limitation in terms of understanding all of the concepts and there are countless examples of that nature now, from from a psychological perspective this is something which is very hard to swallow It's very hard to swallow from a psychological perspective. Uh, I'm supposed to accept this if if it doesn't make sense. Out with it. And this is the interesting blend. Investigate, try to understand, work with the premise that this is what was given, and to the degree that you can then understand it and work with it, fine. To the degree that you, so to speak, draw a blank on it or checkmate and you just can't make it out to the nth degree, you're willing to stand back and say... But this is something that's been given down from generation to generation in a, in a reliable mesaurus, in a reliable chain. Um, I'd like to communicate this idea a little bit if it's confusing. I'd like to communicate it with an example. Uh, maybe one or two of you have heard of the example before, but, but the example is an, a, a, an excellent way of remembering it. <clears throat> the way that Sithis are constructed Okay. Um, the way that tzitzes are constructed is that essentially you have 8 strings at each corner and you put 7 you put 7 as a spine and the 8th one which a long time ago was dyed blue was wound around numerous times knots wound around numerous times knots it was wound around 7 and then 2 knots 8 and 2 knots 11 and 2 knots and 13 and 2 knots if you give a look at the you'll see that there's little winding around knots, winding around knots. And that eighth strand that was wound around the other seven was blue. The other ones were white. What's the concept of this? So, according to some commentaries, white is a symbolism of simplicity. And blue is, is Kabbalistically, uh, a symbol of investigation. I won't go through all of the proofs of how that is, but white is simple faith, acceptance, and blue, characteristically, is always a symbol of investigation. There are many proofs of this. And essentially what the concept of the tzitzis is, is that you need both in order to wear the garment of being a Jew. You need the simple faith, you need a certain measure of acceptance, and at the same time you need the intellectual investigation. But it's very interesting how it's constructed. The spine, the spine is the white. And upon the spine of white, in other words, the, the attitude of, of... a healthy attitude, a wholesome attitude. You know, this comes from somewhere. You know, It has a basis. It has thousands of years. It's a little older than I am. You know, Part of that, there's more to it than that, but I'm not going to get into it right now, all of that. That's the spine. And upon the spine, you have the eighth one of blue, which symbolizes the investigation. Without the seven, you're spinning around nothing. And you're not left not with simple faith and not with the investigation. It's quite interesting. It's quite interesting that women are not obliged to put on tzitzis. And my personal opinion, why they're not obliged to put on tzitzis is because the major component of the tzitzis, uh, the major component of the tzitzis is this concept of the spine of simple faith upon which intellectual investigation is the trap the trap of getting lost in intellectual investigation and not knowing that the roots of yiddishkeit are in that in the in the Masayra of generation to generation is a trap that is classically not something that women fell into all through our history women were the ones that always held on where there was no sense to holding on but that they knew by an abiding faith that HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't leave historically all through history this is the way it was if it was in Egypt it was, if it was after we left Egypt all through our history there are countless examples of this where when everything else we are logically and in understanding ways there was no reason to go on there was no reason to hold on anymore either in the relationships or in Yiddishkeit or whatever it was It was the woman that held strong. Because in the the Yiddish and the woman always had a tremendous amount of spiritual fiber that was based in this feeling and the sense of a connection to Hashem, which uh, which is a tremendously strong connection. The man always fell into this trap of intellectualizing away his Judaism. And everything has to be logical, and everything has to have a reason. And if it doesn't make sense... Out with it. So it was the man that needed the support of the beggar Choltzitzes to remind him. Yeah, invest intellectual investigation, but one eighth of the of the total formula, and it had to be on this this spine of simple faith. So essentially, now if we read over the paragraph, we have a little bit of better better appreciation. Let's just read it inside. Tavasi Ritzoni, my desire and my <coughs> my my desire <coughs> and my yearning is. To sit and to start thinking and to try to understand and to let it sit well with me. Some of the things, of those things that it says, of those things that the Torah obliges me that I have to think about them and understand them. I'm reviewing the first paragraph. And I'm talking about, yeah, I'm talking about principles of faith, principles of Judaism. Every person is obliged to run after understanding them. You know, I I once heard, uh, it's unimportant from who, but I once heard that, uh, listen, I don't know exactly what the 13 principles of faith are. By the way, they're in the Siddur, right after the morning prayers. I don't know what they are, but I'm afraid it. This was a comment that was once made to me, but I'm afraid if I read them and I start seeing them, I won't understand them, and then I'm going to get worried that I'm not a believer, so I just leave it alone. So, the Das Tunis is saying that ignorance is not bliss, right? and a person is obliged to, to understand them as much as is, is possible. So, the intellect says, Where are you going? Okay, where are you? I f- know there's 13 principles of faith. You want to know all of them? You have questions about all of them, or there are some in particular that you'd like to focus in. Hinei ha'ikarim hem There are 13 of them. Val ez mehem Which ones would you like to to understand? Amr So the soul answers. The first thing I want to do is I want to make a statement. The 13 principles of faith, I have an abiding faith that they're all true. I don't have... It's not as if you have to win me over. I I have a sense that they're all true. Okay? I have a sense of their truth. But... There is a distinction. There are those that I have a sense that they're true and I also understand them. But there are those that are true to me by a sense of their being true. But if you would ask me to prove it, if you would ask me for logical reasons, I wouldn't be able to. Now this is, again, this points back to what I was talking about before, that there is a possibility there is that realm of possibility of accepting something or having a sense of something being true without necessarily knowing all of the logical arguments and the equations and the sequences to prove it. So the Nishama says the Nishama says, I have essentially um, a, a sense of truth for all of them, but for some of them, besides the sense of, sense of truth, I understand them. and others I don't understand so well, right. So this is what the Neshama is saying. Now, at a later date, if you'll remind me, we can have a little bit of a discussion about what this Amuna is all about. How without understanding something... Here the Neshama is making an admission. There are those things which I cannot understa- I don't understand them. I can't give logical reasons to them, but I know that they're true. Is that something that is legitimate? Seemingly it is. That's what Amunah is. Right? Why is it legitimate? If I can't prove it, if I can't understand it, but I have a sense of its truth, what, where does that fall? In, in, like, how do we look at that kind of operation? Right? That's essentially what he's referring to here by Amuna. Amuna is this, this sense of truth without necessarily being able to prove it. Hakira, on the other hand, is proving it through investigation. That's what the word means. What's the legitimacy of Amuna? Why is it legitimate altogether? A sense that something is true without being able to prove it. Why is that legitimate? Where does it come from? It's fascinating that the is in a probing stage. Emunah, the neshama's got. I wish, I, I wish we all would have that simple amuna. But the neshama says, no, emunah is not a problem. Havana, some understanding in some areas is the problem. He's alluding to the fact that essentially there's an inborn amuna that a person has. There is an inborn connection that a person has to God, which is a, a, a very, very fascinating discussion. And I can't control myself, so I must tell you just one example of it before we go further. There's an interesting story. <clears throat> this is by far, by no means, doing justice to the issue of what the legitimacy of this sense of truth without uh, understanding is all about. But there's an interesting story that the Gemara in Baba Basra says. The, and ba- the Talmud the Baba Babastra relates a story about how um, a daughter was uh, a daughter of, of a certain family, was bragging about how promiscuous she was. And her mother overheard the, this, uh, her, this, this bragging discussion. And her mother uh, said that she should be more discreet about it. And at that point in time, told her daughter that she was also promiscuous, and a major part of the family doesn't even come from the, the what would be accepted as the natural father at home. In the breakdown of things, this sounds rather awkward, but in the breakdown of things, there were ten children at home, and she told her daughter that there is only one child that comes from the father of this house household. Little did this discreet mother of daughter know, but her husband was listening. And her husband was very annoyed about it and took sick, more or less right afterwards, and was about to die. And on his deathbed, he proclaimed that he did not want that the estate that would be left should go to anybody except what was his child and with that he left the world. Now, here starts the investigations. Who is who is, who is the heir to this estate? And they went to uh, the sage of the times, the name fails me at this moment, and they asked, what should they do? The answer that came was, first, bury your father. That's the first thing. And then come back. They came back and they said, now go back to the grave site. And take a stick, each one of you, and bang on the grave and ask for your and there were no voices coming out of the grave telling us who the true heir was so the sage uh, questioned them and said are you sure that you listened to my advice are you sure that you all went and upon closer investigation nine of the ten children went out with sticks to the grave the tenth went out but could not bring himself to bang on the grave to which the sage said that the, the child that did not bang on the grave was the natural son and was the heir to the estate so Reveilleau uh, Lapian uh, a great Musser ethical figure says about this story that what we see from this story is that on a logical level on a scientific level the child had no way of proving a connection there was no way there was no there was no there were no birth certificates there were no ways of proving it but where there is an essential connection between father and son there is an innate knowledge of it and what erivoliola piano essentially says is that if that's true where the connection is essentially only biological how much more so would a connection or a sense of a connection exist where virtually the entire existence of the human being comes from from a, a spiritual father as God is, where the whole existence of the person from moment to moment is tied is tied to God? So what Yola Apian is essentially saying, which is the point where I have to I have to I have to stop this discussion because it gets very involved, is that there is a very innate and very subtle sense of connection that we have to know that God created us and that God is a creator. It's there by virtue of the fact that I'm a created being of him and somewhere deep down I have a sense of that. It's just that it's a very deeply deeply ingrained kind of a feeling that needs tremendous sensitivity to be able to be in tune with. Sometimes even when you taste something which has a delicate taste, right? if you gulp it down or if you don't, are not paying attention, you won't get the taste of it. The taste is there. The item is there. But if you're not d- taking it delicately, if you're not swallowing it properly, or if you're not paying attention, you're in the middle of watching a football game or whatever else, you, it'll it'll pass you by. And essentially that's what Reveilleur Lapian says. It's a very deep connection that exists but there's a lot of there's a lot of static and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of disturbance there's a lot of turbulence in our lives that doesn't give us the opportunity without concentration and without uh, really thinking about it to feel that sense to feel that connection. But this is uh you know, this we'll we'll have a discussion about this sometime in the future. But I just have to get that out. Let's go. All right, Amahasechum. Which ones do you only have a sense of truth and which ones do you really understand? All right. Just before we go further, are there any questions up to up to this point? Is everybody comfortable? You want some some ear? You're sure? Any, you sure? Any we vote for some ear? No? no? You're fine? Okay. Okay, HaNeshama. So the the soul says and you better hold on to your seats. He named it Hashem, the existence of God, Yihudai his oneness, nitzchiyusai, his eternity, the Heyaischutzmin Haguf, and his being outside of any physical limitations, because Mikri haguf, and all of the circumstances of the physical you're listening to the list. Chidusha the creation of the world ex nihilo. the concepts of prophecy, the legitimacy of prophecy. Nevua the prophecy of Moses. Torah menashimayim, the divinity of Torah. Vinitschiusa and its eternity. Shalotishtana, that it will never change. Kohadvar that whole list which I just gave you now. I, bl- I have a sense of truth of those things and I understand them we might as well go home he's just so far ahead of us and I have no need for any kind of explanation no need no explanations truth, understanding I got the whole thing under my belt no problem, not bad But divine providence Hashgacha, God's involvement in the world. <speaking> in <Hebrew> a real system of justice with reward and punishment. <speaking in Hebrew> the coming of Mashiach. <speaking in Hebrew> and Resurrection. <speaking in Hebrew> I believe in those things because a Jew is supposed to believe in those things. And I have a sense that they're true. <speaking in> Hayisi <Hebrew> But I'd like to hear some logic for those things. Everything else is no problem. But these four things I'd like to hear a little bit more about. Right? (laughs) Interesting, huh? All disappointed, right? He just knocked off nine and left four. Let, Let me try to... I can't figure out this machine. Okay. Now the line... Forget it. Um... <clears throat> Let me try to explain where where Meshachayim Lutzat is coming from. You know, this t- takes us for a little bit of a shake. When I read this, when I read this, I, I take this as personally very strengthening. And I'll tell you why. For two reasons. Reason number one is that first of all it t- tells us that a person can be terribly or tremendously, not terribly, tremendously advanced in Yiddishkeit, or advanced in Jewish perspective, or expected to be a believer in many ways, and really be a believer in many ways, and still have certain areas that are not clear. You know, sometimes, you know, a, a common question that always comes up is, uh, when people come into my office office that was but, the, you know you're so sure about everything, Rabbi don't you ever wonder about anything? aren't you ever suspicious about anything? don't you ever question anything? and that's a very you know, that's a very natural kind of a question and and the the truthful answer to that the truthful answer to that is that probing and questioning, in other words, I don't think that, uh, personally, that, that I really question and, you know, I'm suspicious that something's not true. But obviously, there's a certain amount of, of questioning that we have. What, what, why did this happen? Uh, do we really understand this completely? How does this fit into the total picture? Can we make sense of this? There's nobody that that's really a thinking person that can say everything's understandable. Everything is... is I got it right where it belongs, in its right place, and I've got no problems with it. It's not... It's just as long as we're thinking individuals and we're striving to understand more and more, the more we know, the more we realize that we don't really have the the total understanding of something. So when I read this and this person has really knocked off a significant amount of the principles of belief in this but breaks on I don't understand Hashgacha I don't understand Skarva Onish Divine Providence Reward and Punishment Mashiach Resurrection you know what that says to us is that we all have rights to ask questions to understand things and I would think I would think that um, that the, he's being extremely extremely real Because there's a lot of Jewish philosophy that it's cerebral. There is a God. He's one. He's eternal. There's prophecy. There's Moses. That's very nice. But where does it really come into the crunch? Where it comes into the crunch is how it affects our lives. Is he there? Is he involved? Where's the reward? Where's the punishment? Where's the justice in the world? Where is this whole thing going? It doesn't seem to be going any place? Is there a final accounting for everything that happens? Those are the real questions. those are the human questions that we ask ask that are a very important part of, 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 of believing. Because if we really have underlying gripes about, uh where was god when this happened where was god when this happened and so on and so forth and these are que- these are the questions that bother us the most because they are the ones that are most directly related to our lives they are the things that touch our sensitivities if we know all of the different aspects of god's oneness i think there are books that have been written about god's oneness so i don't know all of the aspects of god's oneness it's not the end of the world but but in the day-to-day living is god there You know, what is he doing? Is he saying something to me or is he just saying, go your merry way and leave me alone? Like, those kinds of questions, those are critical questions. And that's why when I read this, it's very real. Here's a fellow that's saying that all of the cerebral philosophy of Yiddishkeit, I don't got problems with. When it comes down to day-to-day living, that's where i got some problems. I don't understand a lot of things from what is claimed to be the belief and what is the reality out there or what seems to be the reality to me. So I think Rav Meshachim is really talking to every single one of us. And Rav is says, don't we ask those questions, where was God, where is God? I mean, if it's the Holocaust or if it's in our own lives, the reward and punishment and justice. And these are the questions that we ask. And those are the ones that go the deepest, and those are the ones that, that if they can do anything in terms of building or destroying our belief, those are the ones. That, that's more than anything else. The other questions, we're not such, I mean, may, maybe I shouldn't include everybody, but we don't live on such high stratospheres of intellectualism that if we do or don't know all of the proofs of, you know, of, it's, it's not the end of the world and this is what this is what Lazaro is saying so the intellect says what's your problem the intellect's asking what's your problem with these four things so the soul says (coughs) I'll tell you what's the problem the world out there is the problem everything that's going on in the world how the world turns. How the world turns itself over. Where you can point to so many incidents of history that seem to be pointing in the opposite direction of any kind of involvement on God's part. I mean, we unfortunately don't have to go too far back in our history. And, we, and I'm sure it's on everybody's mind. So the we don't have to go so far back. I mean, when we talk about something like the Holocaust, as an example, okay? I mean that that, that would be um, that would be a prime example where no matter who you, no matter what where you look for the answers, it's still not an an issue that's completely answered by by any by any stretch of the imagination and Kol Shikain going on in the text and if we look at history and we see the what's going on in history do we see a pattern to history that it's leading to some ultimate goal, to some ultimate end it, seems to, it doesn't seem to have any particular direction here and there we see a direction but do we see can we discern within what's happening now, how it's leading to some ultimate end not really. We, we don't see any pattern to it. And if there's no pattern to it, and there's no direction to it, so how do we understand that God's involved? God's involved, but there's no direction to it? That doesn't make any sense. Right? And this is a person that already believes that God you know, God is everything. So God is everything, and now you tell me that He's involved, and if He's involved, why, di- why can't we discern some kind of a direction to what's going on? What does he want from us? What does he ultimately want from us? And is, Where is he directing us? Where is he leading us to? What's going to be the end of everything? Right? <coughs> And the truth of the matter is that this question, in terms of the pattern, or where is it all leading to, is a question which is, is, is a mind-boggling question. Because you have to be able to have a perspective of all of history in order to be able to answer it. You have to know past, present, and the future. And to look at any one period onto itself without the whole sequence is not going to make any sense. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why we can't ultimately understand history until Mashiach comes. Fully understand history. There are lessons that we can take from history, but to fully understand history, we can't. Because it's 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 all part of a puzzle. So we can put different parts to the puzzle, but we don't see the final picture until the last piece is in. The last piece is in. That's, that's, that's when Mashiach is here. And that's what he's trying to point out. I'm asking you a question to be able to understand the totality of history. But I'm willing to admit to the fact that I have an incapability of judging the totality of history. Because I have to have past, present, and understand how the future would relate to the past and the present, and the sequence and when it should happen and where it should happen and why it should happen. That's you know, But I want to know some rules. What are we hoping for? What are we looking for? I mean, how are things going to happen? Is, is, did God put everything on hold like a telephone call for a couple of hundred years well, you know, or, or is something really going on and if it is going on why, where is it going on and how is it going on those are the kinds of questions that the Neshama wants to know and I really want you to teach me the straight path in this to understand the the straightness of these things I want it, I want straight answers and don't take me off to the right and to the left don't take me off on tangents give me something that I can feel is straight that it makes you know that it makes sense so the intellect says don't you realize that you've asked some very difficult and very deep questions what are you asking? I'll tell you what you're asking. Sadiq Veralai. You're asking why the righteous suffer. Roshav You're asking why the wicked prosper. Niskashu al Vanavim. Your question isn't a new question. Your question, the greatest prophets and the greatest wise, wisest of all people asked many years ago. Even Moses asked this question. She Sigam. And Moshe didn't get a full answer either. Now what is Lazaro referring to? What Lazarus is referring to here is an interesting thing. Uh, when Moses was begging for forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf, for the Chetah um, when he finally received forgiveness, the level of forgiveness that Moshe received for, this, for the sin of the golden calf wasn't just, okay, you are forgiven, now get the dash out of here. It was it was a level of forgiveness, which was very similar to when two people that are in a, in an intimate relationship have a misunderstanding, and there's distance between them, and then they work out the dif- the the difference. They speak out what the misunderstandings are. They speak out where the mistakes are. They they make commitments about where they're going to put more attention so that it shouldn't happen again. They express. Uh, they express their feelings about how they didn't want it to happen, so on and so forth. There are different components. Anybody knows that in a relationship, right, in a relationship it's not just so cold, you know, I did something wrong, please forgive me, I'm forgiven, that's the end of it. It doesn't go like that, right? The, the relationship has too many components to it that it should be so simple like that. What was it that bothered you about the statement? What were the reasons why you made the statement? Why did you do what you did? Do you understand me and do I understand you? And in the process of forgiveness, there has to be a lot of understanding and a lot of expression of true feelings from both sides in order for the people to get back together again. And so too, in our relationship with God, it's the same thing. The fact that it's God doesn't make it less. It only makes the need... For all of the components that bring a relationship back together to bring a person back to God and anything it needs more of those components it needs more of that and it needs it in greater depth and therefore when we talk about the moment that Moshe accomplished forgiveness it was a tremendous moment of love between Kalal Yisrael between the Jewish people Moses and God it wasn't a moment of okay you're forgiven get the dash out it was a tremendous moment of ava. In other words, it was a tremendous moment of love where Moses was able to to touch God's love for his people and to agree to forgiveness. Where Moses was able to get the people's commitment and feeling of love towards God to make an honest commitment to the relationship. So there was a tremendous amount of warmth in that moment. Moses found no better time to ask God why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper in that moment? Because Moses felt that this is the time to sort of speak chaparain. grab it in. Now at this moment of tremendous love, now maybe I can ask some of the humdicker questions and maybe I'll get some answers. And that's what Moses asked. Moses asked God. Moses wanted to see the full face of God. Those of you that are familiar with the Chumash, where Moses wants to understand the full face. And essentially what God says is that you can see the back, but you can't see my face, which is a discussion for itself what that's all supposed to mean. But essentially Moses didn't get an answer to the question. Now, they don't worry. There will be answers. What it means is that there were no full answers. We don't have full answers. We don't have the whole extent. We can have certain rules, but we won't have the totality of, of, of the picture. But we'll have enough of that and we, we have a system to believe in. We have a system to be confident with. Do you follow what I'm saying? That much we will have. And this is what Rav Moshe Chaim is going to commit himself to in the book. I'm not going to give you all the answers, but I'll give you enough to work with so that you can feel that it's reasonable. You won't know the particular particulars in any one, one, one case. Why did it happen this way? Why to this person more than to that? Those things it's hard for us to know. I'll give you an example of this. So it shouldn't be so abstract. Let me give an example. One of the uh, a common philosophy that Rabbi Destel speaks about a lot, or at least expounds about a lot, is that we do have predetermined, by God, certain circumstances of our lives. That we have to admit to. Predetermined, some of them we admit to, some of them we don't. Uh, we will admit to the fact that we're more or less predetermined in terms of our basic intelligence. We are born with a certain amount of intelligence. Obviously, it can be more developed, less developed. We're, we're more or less born with a certain degree of health or lack of it. Uh, we're born with the genes to grow so tall or so short and so on and so forth. There are certain things that are predetermined. The Tama tells us that not only the physical conditions of a person's life are predetermined but many of the general boundaries of a person's life are determined in terms of will this person be a fabulously wealthy person in life or a very poor person in life or will he just trot along at a moderate salary all life long uh, now, that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility to do our best, but there are certain predetermined things. So, the basic concept is that, let's say one person is predetermined, and by the way, there's a whole discussion at what point is this determined. At the point of conception, before conception, there's a large discussion about this, this issue is addressed. But, let's say one person is determined to, to be fabulously wealthy or lifelong, and another person destitutely poor. What Rabbi points out is that both of them have a contribution to make in terms of their own personal growth and in terms of what they can contribute to the world within this set of circumstances that they have. The fabulously wealthy person has a whole set of tests that are unique to the fact that he's wealthy. Will he do with his resources that which which he can do that other people can do? Will he fall prey to all of the different vices and the limitations of having it? Or will he rise above it and not lose his sensitivity but become more sensitive to other people and so on and so forth? The destitutely poor person obviously doesn't have a challenge of giving $50,000 to an organization. He doesn't have a dime. So that's not his challenge. But he can have other challenges. He can have a challenge of, of being honest, He's going to have a challenge of remaining loyal under the hardest conditions. There are all kinds of challenges that he can have that are uniquely his. Essentially, Rabbi Dessel says that every person is called upon to develop and to make a contribution to the world in terms of his own spiritual growth that's unique to his set of circumstances. All right. Now, that will put into a perspective my circumstance, and it will put into perspective your circumstance. You're meant to grow your way, I'm meant to grow within my circumstances. Right? That's pretty reasonable. Now you come along and you ask the question, yeah, but why did I have to be destitutely poor and you fabulously rich? Why couldn't it be the other way around? Right? Why couldn't it be the other way around? Right? Now that is a question, no doubt, that's a question. But that's not a question anymore. That's, that's already a particular. That's not a question of the, of the philosophy of it. That's a question, why you and not me? And so and why me, not you? Those are the particulars. Where we're trying to apply certain concepts and we want to know it to the nth degree. Or let's say when a punishment happens. Or when something bad happens. Or something that we believe is bad happens. And we want to know why it's happening. And there can be a host of reasons. In the discussion of Tzadik Varela, why a righteous person suffers, there is about a dozen reasons which the commentaries talk about. So now you have a dozen reasons. Now you want to know in your particular case that you have in front of you, of Tzadik Varela, of the righteous person that suffered, which one of the twelve is true? Which one was it? Again, we don't have as human beings we have to admit to the fact that we don't necessarily know with a conclusiveness which one of the twelve it was. But does that matter? Just as long as there are reasons, the fact that I don't necessarily know the particular one, as it applies to a particular case, is not necessarily the end of the world from a philosophical standpoint. And that's what Rav Meshachayim Litzat is saying. I'll give you the general rules. I'll give you what to work with that the philosophies are reasonable. But don't get hung up in the particulars. If you get hung up in the, the particulars, we, there comes a point where we're limited in understanding it to the nth degree. Now this is a very fascinating approach, because usually, how do people, how do people work through a problem? People work through the problem the exact opposite. They don't start with the rules, they don't start with trying to understand it objectively without themselves in the picture they start from the particulars and they want to know why me and why now and why in this way they start from all of the particulars without having any of the backgrounds or any of the foundations and that Lazada says you virtually never get out of that that you can't get out of because that's trying to build the 20th floor without the foundation you can't build the 20th floor without the foundation and that's what Rivmesh Meshachayim Latzatz is saying the Neshama is saying I have all of these questions about Divine Providence and right, uh, Reward and Punishment and Mashiach and Resurrection i got big questions and, then this, and the Seichel says you know you're asking tough stuff you're asking real hard, hard material so the Neshama says I know, I recognize the fact that I'm asking it and I'm not going to bog down in particulars but I want to have a sense of it a direction to it how, how it makes enough sense to believe. And this is... Rav Meshachayim doesn't say it here, but he says it in another work. He says, Rav Meshachayim says that there is virtually no area that Hashem leaves, that God leaves, so mysterious that a person can't believe. In other words, for God to make man... A thinking individual, a man that quests answers, wants reasons, and then to frustrate man in, in questions that will torment him to, a, to the point that he cannot believe would not be fear. And it's not a logical way to create man. So Rav Meshachayim makes a statement that God wants man to understand and gives man enough ability provided that there's background and everything else and the natural and the normal foundation to understand enough that it does not undermine his belief. But you have to make a distinction between what kind of questions would undermine belief and those questions have to be answered, and a direction has to be given to them. And the kinds of questions that don't really undermine belief, but are just the particulars of what my Yekishkeit, my German tendency that I have to know all, you know, to the nth degree exactly why it happened in my particular situation. You know, and sometimes it's, you know, it's just that I have to feel in control, and I have to know why everything is happening at that point. You know, sometimes it's not even precision. It's sometimes I've got to be in control. I got to know to the nth degree why it's happening, why it's happening now, and why to me. And it's a con- it's a control problem, which is you know, you'll excuse me, is an ego problem. You know, uh, with you know, without mincing words, that's what it boils down to. And that's what Lazara says. We have to we have to separate the issues. Legitimate questions, fine. Those things we'll deal with. The control things and the ego things and why me things. That's a whole different area. He says that that there that's, that's not to this book. It's not for any book, you know. That's that's essentially what the mashal chayim letzada is saying. So let's just see that inside. Amar haneshama ha the particulars shalayuchal avin that I can't understand. Aniyach I'll leave that. It's the third paragraph. Ach shakolim lepachus yubiyadu yisharim, but that the rules should be straightened in in, by me. Sheedal kopanim etzos zvar yishar b'chol reichav advarim. Va'az mashalayt yidiyasi. And then when I'll know the general rules, and then I've come to a point where I don't understand, Allah asks me, I will say to myself, Lay Alecha Hamlacha Ligmar. Charlie, you don't have to know it all. You don't have to finish it all. You just gotta do your best at what your quest is and what your questions are. Who said that you have to figure out the whole world? All right? Which is also, uh, you know, another, another, you know, it's interesting how he's putting it in over here. Sometimes we get so caught up. You know that we figure that we have to have answers for everything. You don't have to finish it all. If you if you leave this world and you'll have the major questions answered, it's also all right. You don't have to answer everything.